Welcome to episode five of the Dave Witty Show. I'm your host, Dave Witty. Thanks for tuning in again, folks. Hope you had a great week out there. Happy to be back for another episode. Um, really enjoyed last week's episode with Brian Aylward. Just thought that was absolutely hilarious. So fun to get to chat with him on the other side of the world like that. And I mean, get to really get break down on, on what he's been up to and, and everything during COVID. Um, plus, he has this big special coming out. I mean, I'm not going to dig too much into, into Brian as, as we did last episode, but I mean, make sure you do check out his comedy special coming out on March 10th on Amazon Prime, which is a huge deal for, for any Newfoundlander. Um, this week, you know, in Newfoundland, we're still in lockdown here, so I'm still at the house, still doing podcasts um, virtually through Zoom and stuff like that. Um, still in lockdown. They announced another two weeks where we're going to be shut down right up until, you know, at least next Friday. Um, for, for the right reasons, you know, they're really nipping this thing in the bud there. It's, it's, it seems like the cases are going down every day. There's lots of new recoveries. So, I mean, some very promising signs for, for Newfoundland as a whole. Um, maybe today you're listening to this, digging yourself out of the snowstorm. I'm recording this on Tuesday, but you're probably listening on Wednesday. So maybe you're outside. Uh, make sure you're, if you're shoveling, uh, use your knees. That's a, that's a good little tip for you there. Um, this week I'm joined by... Jerry Stamp, who's a very, very interesting person. I mean, Jerry is a, a very gifted songwriter. He's been a, a, a in the scene here in Newfoundland for years and years. And I mean, I first saw Jerry play would have been 15, 16 years ago. I, I speak about this in our interview, but I mean, I first seen Jerry play it at one of Adam Baxter's uh, Epic Wednesdays at Distortion. And I immediately remember thinking that I had to get better as a songwriter because I was so enthralled by the way that Jerry performed. I mean, he uses very cool tunings. Uh, he's an incredible songwriter. His voice is so powerful. Um, really, really, really cool cat. I mean, he's got a great story to tell. Um, he unfortunately was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. And, uh, you know, he had to pivot from there and really start working and, and, and how he could how he could survive, you know, physically, mentally, and financially. Uh, Jerry breaks down all that stuff, and he talks about, you know, living in Toronto with, with his with his band, King Nancy, and a ton of other stuff. I mean, it was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. It was nice to actually dig into some of Jerry's early stuff and, and chat about his Christmas albums and, and all that stuff. So make sure you do stick around for that interview. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed having a chat with Jerry. Um, this week, you know, in, in sporting news, I mean, lots of stuff going on. The North Division is still rolling on hockey. Um, the Leafs are, are rolling right now, guys, like absolutely rolling. Um, <clears throat> big two shutout back, uh, back-to-back shutouts. I mean, with our backup goaltenders, Jack Campbell is in that Saturday night. His first game back looked absolutely stunning. And I mean, this guy, you got to root for him. He's just so fun to watch. He's so positive. It seems like the guys in the, in the locker room love him. They just want to win around him. Um, it, it's an incredible story to watch this guy. You know, he's 29 years old. He's never really been a full-time starting goaltender, but he's he's back. And I mean, he's uh, you know he's our Leafs backup goalie. And and every time he's in, it just looks like the guys are, are fighting for him. Um, Monday night was another big win against the Oilers. I mean, this team is second in the division. Uh, you got Connor McDavid, and Leon Dreisaitl. These guys are. are insane to watch just you know some of the fastest hockey players out there these guys just take off and I mean the Leafs managed to shut them down again on Monday night you know uh, with the we had Michael Hutchison in net I mean 
what can you say about Hutch? You know, he got basically got shunned out of town last last year, and he went on and, and you know played some playoff games with the Colorado Avalanche, and and then he re-signed back in Toronto again this year. Probably not thinking that he'd be doing a whole lot more, so he'd be uh, you know probably down with the Marlies or or as a third string goalie. And of course, Freddie Anderson goes down, uh, Jack Campbell gets hurt, and who do we got to call on? Uh, Michael Hutchison. I mean, I'll be the first to say I was very skeptical about Michael Hutchison and. Uh, uh, but you know, this guy's three and one right now for the Leafs. He's our third string goalie. Uh, he's three and one. He's posted a shutout. He probably, they probably could have won that game that, you know, is technically a loss on his, on his stats. But I mean, they ran into a hot goalie that night, David Riddick in, in, in Calgary. So, uh, the Leafs play again Wednesday, uh, which would be today. If you're listening, you know, another big game against the Oilers. I think it's going to be a tough game to, to, especially, you know, the third game in a row to try to shut down uh, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. These guys are just, just fantastic. It was getting a bit chippy there Monday night. So I'm expecting a bit of a, bit of a scrappy game on Wednesday. Really looking forward to that. Uh, and basketball, I mean, the Raptors, everybody knows, you know, they're down in Florida playing right now. They're, they're shut down. Uh, COVID protocols last Friday, they had six coaches, including head coach Nick Nurse, um, out with COVID protocols. So, I mean, they managed to pull a win together, but everybody kind of knew that if, I mean, if five or six of the coaches are out with COVID protocols, it's probably floating through the team there. So, uh, the last couple of games have been postponed. It looks like they probably won't play again until after the all-star break, which in itself is kind of hilarious in a, in a COVID year. Um, had to have an all-star game. I, know, I mean, it's going on this weekend. There's an all-star game, and, and then there's the uh, the dunk competition, which is going on uh, at halftime, I believe, which is an interesting thing. I mean, it's going to be great for fans, but I can't see the players being being too excited about it. But you know that's a, it'll be a nice little break, and hopefully by the time that's that's over, the Raptors uh, the Raptors will be will be back, and and hopefully all healthy, and hopefully all the coaches and and all the players are are safe and and stuff like that. Um, the Jays are back in preseason. Really excited to see the boys of the summer back. I mean, the Jays got a, a fantastic team put together. A lot of young studs there. Um, Pitching is going to be you know, pretty good. I, I mean, it's it, the, the hitting is, is, and, and the, these, all these young players that we have are going to be really exciting to watch this year. I, I got to say, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the, to the Blue Jays season. Um, another news, you know, I, I did another live feed last Friday night. It was really great turnout. I mean, we had hundreds and hundreds of people tuned in at once and a huge reach of, of a big, big audience. I mean, ton of people writing in and, and requests and, and stuff like that and I had a lot of fun I gotta say so um, you know big thanks to everybody who who definitely popped on there Friday night and listened to a few tunes I'd say I'll be back again this Friday for for some more tunes around probably around seven or eight uh, really enjoy doing those those uh, live feeds it's a great way to interact with people and and get chatting with folks you know especially from all around the world and a good opportunity to be able to play some different songs for people um, been really enjoying that like you say I'll be back again this Friday Friday, so make sure you tune in and and follow me on uh, on Facebook. Um, yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, that's kind of basically what's going on here in Newfoundland. You know, we're still in lockdown life. You know, the, there's lots of lots of sports going on, and I mean, snowstorms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we're into March here now. We're we're out of January and February, which generally are you know, the, the coldest and, and most dreary months of, uh, of Newfoundland. I mean, I'm not going to say it's going to be spring anytime soon, but uh, I mean, at least we're out of the, uh, out of the, out of the dark of January and February. It shouldn't be too much longer. Uh, Patty's day is coming up. You know, it's going to be a different Patty's day this year. Last year I was in Puerto Vallarta, um, March 17th. I mean, it was getting kind of sketchy then 
Trudeau was kind of calling home people at the time and and uh, um, it wasn't quite shut down in, in Puerto Vallarta at that point. We did manage to pull off the uh, the Paddy's Day party and on March 18th, the government of Puerto Vallarta actually shut down all bars. So we were met, lucky to pull that off. I mean, one of these days I'm going to get you know, either John from the from the pub or or some of the bands down there. I'd love to get them on as podcast uh, guests. I mean, it's been a, an interesting part of my life. I've been traveling to Mexico for eight or nine years, where I've been I've been playing tunes and and uh, just you know living in the culture of Puerto Vallarta. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's uh, it's been really special for me. You know. It's basically my second home. I just love it down there. Really missing it this year. Going to miss all the gang this year on uh, on St. Patrick's Day. That's for sure. Doesn't seem like we. Yeah, I, if I was a bet man, I don't think we're going to get much of a Paddy's Day here. I mean, I had a ton of bookings uh, here in St. John's with with Mark Manning and and a bunch of solo stuff as well. But you know, you know. Fingers crossed we, we do get through and, and maybe get something going, but I can't see it happening. So who knows? Maybe we'll do a little little virtual St. Patrick's Day show and uh, and try to play all your favorite songs around St. Patrick's Day. Um, that's pretty much it for, for a little rundown. And uh, I'm just going to throw it right over to Jerry Stamp, guys. This is a really fun interview I had. Uh, really, really inquisitive in, into what, what Jerry is, has been through over the years and, uh, you know, his life and... Um, just really 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 intelligent guy you know he's he's super easy to talk to and has a really great story so make sure you do stick around for jerry stamp and ladies and gentlemen welcome jerry stamp to the podcast thanks for coming on jerry how you doing today man good man thanks for having me um first off you know for people who are listening at home might not know who you are maybe explain a little bit who you are what you do and and where you come from um born and raised in st john's newfoundland labrador uh east end kid for life um i was a a traveling touring original recording artist for 20 plus years and uh then i got uh, diagnosed with an autoimmune disease which kind of made me had to leave that career and start a new one so i became a graphic designer and uh luckily through the last couple of years i've been feeling better enough to play the occasional gig again so well, that's that's good. Um, what what kind of got you started in music? Like, I, I want to talk about music first, and, and then we'll dig into a few more things as, as it goes on. But what was what was some of the things that got you started in music? Like, what were some of your influences as a musician growing up, and and what got you started in that? Uh, I, I think I kind of had like a weird upbringing in terms of music because I had um, like my my dad listened to like you know 50s, 60s rock and like the Irish Newfoundland show, and then my mother listened to a lot of like Lawrence Welk and classical music. My sister listened to like Madonna and things like that, like pop hits of the day in the eighties. But then all the guys that she hung out with, all her friends listened to like Metallica and Iron Maiden. Right. So I had this like weird, like, you know, I remember like being a kid and having like the, um, the cassette sleeve, like the long mm-hmm. cassette thing. And I remember like showing it to somebody one time. It was like Neil Diamond next to Iron Maiden. And they're like, dude, you're weird. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty weird. It's a pretty weird, like cross-section music. And I wasn't, uh, I never actually prepared myself to, or planned to have thought about going into music. I just loved it. I ate it up. I read every story and article at the time, watched much music religiously when I used to play music videos. Um, and the glory, then actually, the glory uh, days. Yeah. Yeah. For, that, for the five minutes they did that. And then there was um, all of a sudden a friend of mine sort of tricked me into auditioning for the Holy Heart Chamber Choir. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing like a mixtape one night. You know, like people used to do mixtapes all the time. So I'm making a mixtape for a friend and she's on the phone with me. We're just chatting and she gets called away by her parents for a minute. When she came back, I was kind of singing along with whatever I was dubbing. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, you had a really nice voice. You should audition for chamber choir. And I was like, no. 
Anyway, like a week and a half later, I get called to the office because I'm late for my chamber choir audition that she signed me up for. So <laughs> next thing you know, I'm in chamber choir and that's kind of started my career as a singer. Yeah. So with, with the chamber choir and stuff like that, was, was that a reason that, was that something that pushed you to go to university to, to study music? Well, when, once I kind of made a decision that like music was where I wanted to go, because I, f- I fought it for a couple of years. I was like, I'm going to go into like, I don't know, chiropractic school, or I'm going to go to like through geology or something that was a more considered to be a more fortuitous career. Mm-hmm. Cause everybody knows music is like a half, you know, it's, it's a rough road to go down and not necessarily make a lot of money. So I fought it. And for years, I just kept still writing songs and just kept wanting to do it. So I said to myself, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to make sure I know all the ins and outs about it. And if people don't like my music, then that's fine, but they can't say, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Absolutely. So, so yeah, it was, so when you, you graduated high school, you went to university and you studied music, uh, classical music, I believe it was right. Yeah. And voice studies. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that experience like, you know, uh, in the university? At first I hated it. Um, my first day of school, I was like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> um, because I was like a, a pop rock kid. I had some like, you know, a little bit of music lessons behind me and piano and stuff, but I wasn't like a, 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 I didn't understand theory. I didn't understand a lot of that stuff. And a lot of my classmates had been doing that kind of stuff for years, right? They were all like proficient at theory and had taken all these courses and done like Royal Conservatory exams. And a lot of my instructors were very openly letting me know how they did not appreciate uh, a rock musician trying to come into their world. No way, man. That's very interesting. So was, was the entry process tough for that? Like without knowing a whole lot of theory and stuff like that, or. Well, technically speaking, you have to do your audition on your, your main practical instrument, which for me was voice. Um, But then you have to do like a piano proficiency exam. You have to write a theory exam and that kind of places you into where you will go if you get accepted. So you basically get accepted based on the fact that you have, graduated high school, you got the, the marks to get in university, but then you're really only accepted in, your, in the music school program based on your instrument, your audition. They have to hear if they think you, there's something there they can work with. Everything other than that that you get tested on is more so about like what level do we put you in? Like with me, it was like, you got to go into rudimentary theory because you don't, you don't even know enough to start first year theory. So I had to like start a rudimentary theory. I did like, you know, the first year piano course, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it was, it was basically your audition that gets you in. And then everything else is kind of figured out afterwards. Now, I actually didn't get accepted at first based on a mistake from the registrar's office, um, which told them that for some reason I didn't have the marks to get in school. Um, so actually, like, I just went to the, the, the dean of the music school and kind of said, like, just want to know, like, you know, is there anything I can do to improve upon for next year if I want to do a re-audition? And that was when she kind of found out that, like, She's the, the registrar's office had this this wrong scoring mark written down for me or something. Basically said like I hadn't graduated high school. I was like, no, no, I've been done for over a year. You know, so we had to figure that out, and that took a couple of weeks. But after that was like settled, that was like, okay, you're in. Um, but yeah, after, once I started, at first I was like, uh, this is this is a bad decision. And over time, I kind of won over some of those professors, and some people left, and new professors came in, and a lot of the new professors were much more accepting of a, a pop rock musician. Mm-hmm, right. Um, so that was definitely helpful. I mean, as, as far as I understand it now, the school is very open to like a lot of young like rock musicians and stuff coming to school. But when I first started, there was maybe like four or five of us and we were all kind of like pigeonholed by some of the, uh, some of the particular props we're teaching. Yeah. Was that, was that like, um, was that intimidating to do that, to, to be kind of 
to put yourself in that position as, as someone kind of a little bit different in the school of music or? Yeah, I mean, it was, but I think in a weird way, like I've always had this weird ability to like confront my own anxieties about things because I know there's like a bigger picture that I'm going for. So as anxious as I was and uncomfortable as I was with it, it was like, but this is what I got to do. If I want to do this career in music and I want to know everything I can know about it so that, you know, I will be good at it. Um, I got to do this. So, you know, I just kind of sucked it up and did it. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and after about like, you know, I mean, my first semester there was not very good, but then after that, I started to figure things out a little bit more. Uh, I met a few new, cause I mean, you know how like, you meet like new professors every semester in my second and third semesters, I met professors who were much more like uh, nurturing. You no, know? they were more into like, you know, you got something here, we can teach you, you know. Uh, so it was, it was much better. I mean, I had out of my first year of vocal prof was great. He was like, loved the fact that I was a rock musician. He was like, I'm going to teach you how to do both things, techniques for like rock music and techniques for classical music. So, mm-hmm. so I, I did have some people in my corner, but it, it took a while to get kind of comfortable and get going. But my second year, I was fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... You know, after university, you started the group King Nancy um, that was formed here in St. John's or or because I know you moved yeah, to we, Toronto for a while, right, with the group. How did that kind of start? Was that in St. John's and, and who was involved in that project? Hold on. <clears throat> we, uh, we kind of started King Nancy uh, accidentally. Uh, a guy I grew up around but not friends with, Mark Turner, uh, saw me play solo acoustic at a cabaret event one night. Uh, it's actually something Amelia Curran put together before she moved away. And um, he just kind of came up to me and said, like, hey, man, I haven't talked in a couple of years. We should jam sometime. So we started kind of just jamming as an acoustic duo, and that turned into a couple of songs. And eventually we, we, we spent a couple of years going back and forth with different members. Like we had some of the guys from a band called Feed uh, backed us up for a couple of months before they all moved away. Like we knew they were leaving, but we just did it for a laugh anyway. Uh, and then... About a year after all that happened, we kind of just accidentally met uh, Brad Madden, who played bass, and Chris Clark, who played drums, within about like three or four weeks of each other. Uh, Brad was a bass player in music school, and Chris was a drummer who had just moved back to St. John's from living away. And uh, a bunch of his friends and other bands that, that we were friends with kind of said, like, you guys should jam with this guy. So we did, and things just kind of gelled, and we just kind of took it from there. Yeah, and I mean, like, I think you guys did. I was counting down through, like, King Nancy released four or five albums as, as a group, I believe, right? Yeah, we did like we did like a, a full-length album. Uh, then we did like an EP. Then we did uh, another full-length album. They're like kind of our official releases. Mm-hmm. We also did a series of like um, kind of sold from the side of the stage live releases. Oh, neat. Yeah, right on. So what was, the, what, was the, uh, what was the idea behind moving to Toronto? I mean, I'm a musician. I know what it's like in St. John's, but like what was that? What was behind that? And how did you feel about that? Like what, what kind of thoughts were going through your head when you you made that decision uh it was a very arduous decision i i'd been thinking about it for years even before king nancy became a thing that was kind of my my goal i mean my plan was you know go to music school learn what you're doing learn your your hone your craft uh and then go to a city like toronto or somewhere where like you know you can kind of get a foot in the door um Toronto was, was more decided upon by the band when, once we started talking like i i kind of told all of them you know this is what i'm planning to do if you guys want to come, let's go do it. Right. They were all kind of like, absolutely, let's do it. So um, we kind of decided on Toronto for that reason. Mm-hmm. When it was me thinking about doing it solo, I was fine with the idea of like, maybe I'll go to Boston, maybe I'll go to New York, maybe I'll go to LA. I don't know. I just I just wanted to go somewhere and start doing it. So as a band, we decided that Toronto made sense because it was still in Canada. It was central. 
in the, mm-hmm. in the country so we could tour. Um, and it wasn't too far away from home that, you know, you were, you were unable to get back there at any point in time. So we, um, we kind of decided to do it uh, a year before we were going to go. Like the guys agreed that we were going to do it. We all kind of save up some, some money and put that c- first CD out and all that kind of stuff. And the CD came out, like, I think about a month, month and a half before we actually like piled into the van and moved away. You guys did some extensive touring, I mean, throughout Canada and stuff like that. Like, what was that life like? I mean, how long were you in, you were in Toronto for four or five years, I believe, or four years, yeah, four years. Yeah. And, and I mean, you guys, I was going down through some of these notes here and, you know, you're saying 250 gigs a year, sometimes stuff like this and, and a lot of touring and, and, you know, meeting label execs and stuff like that. Like that must've yeah. been just a whole new experience in itself. It was wild. It wasn't, uh, it definitely wasn't as, you know, romantic as people often think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we did, we, like King Nancy wasn't playing 250 gigs a year. That was more like when I started doing solo stuff. Sure. Right. Sorry. But yeah. we were still doing like, we, we all worked like Joe jobs throughout the week. Mm-hmm. Monday would be band day. So we all had Monday off work. We would like go, we'd rehearse for three or four hours. We'd go back to my place. We'd get a few beers and some pizza or something like that. And we'd sit down and we'd watch like live DVDs from anybody. Oh, we'd just cool. go to the video store around the corner from my place. And we'd get like, one night we might get like Madonna and Pink Floyd and we just watched both of them back to back. And we would pick them apart and say, what is good about this performance? Yeah. What works, what doesn't. So we really studied music and, and how it all worked. And we were, we went out like pretty much every night to like the, you know, the main music venue bars at the Horseshoe and the Riverly and all that stuff. And we met all the right people and just kept talking. We weren't like glad handers because I mean, only one of the guys in the band would be a self-professed, you know, able to walk up to a stranger and be like, Hey, how you doing? I'm so-and-so from this band. The yeah. rest of us were very like, you know, if it didn't, if it didn't happen generically or, or organically, we yeah. wouldn't be involved in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we worked, we, we played a bunch of gigs. We got noticed fairly early. Um, but it was a weird time. Like, I mean, I don't think anybody now would have to move to Toronto. You could, and it would still work in, to your, to your advantage in some ways. But at that point in time, like we were, I think one of the last bands they kind of had to move away to try to get noticed. Mm-hmm. Like while we were away, that's when like you had the Novak started and Hey Rosetta started. Um, and they started from here, from, from St. John. So they managed to build a base up here and have that support behind them. Whereas when we left, like pretty much any band who had done anything before would tell you that either they left or they were perpetually on the road, which is basically the same as being left. Mm-hmm. Now you couldn't, you couldn't kind of get that real, not a lot of bands would get that notoriety from still being here. You had to get out of town. Do you think the reason, sorry, do you think the reason that like people, you know, you know, you're saying like the Novaks and Hey Rosetta, et cetera, they toured out of, out of Newfoundland and and a little bit after you guys, do you think the reason that is, is, is because of the travel? Do you think it's it's different now because of social media and the way the internet works and stuff like that? Are are those factors and those, those reasons why you necessarily wouldn't have to be in Toronto nowadays? Uh, I think definitely the the social media aspect is is huge now. I mean, Mm -hmm. when we played in Toronto, the joke was every band you'd meet was never from Toronto. Mm-hmm. You know? Now the same, same idea in Halifax, whenever you see like a band gets like, you know, a blurb and like exclaimants, I was like, Halifax based, blah, blah, Toronto based, like, but that's not where any of them are from. Mm-hmm. Right. Everybody moves to those centers, but usually they're people who are closer. Like if you live in London, Ontario or Guelph, you move to Toronto. Right. Know? Right. Yep. It's not normally that you get like a band from all the way, you know, 3,200 kilometers away that moves to Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think you got to do it now. I think with social media and all that kind of stuff, you can. It's also easier thanks to grants. I mean, between Factor touring grants and showcase grants, uh, Music and L has a bunch of grants that can help people get off the island. You know, in a, in a weird way, the money that Music and L would, would give bands 
pretty much paid for them to get off the island. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much a big support for like, you know, get to Toronto and do all that kind of stuff. Like if you already had your van or whatever, you had to drive across the island to pay the expensive ferry fees. Once you got to like Nova Scotia, it's like, that was the end of your music and money. Yeah, exactly. You got off the island, you got back on. That's pretty much what it worked out to be. Yeah, I mean, uh, and a lot of folks maybe who are listening probably don't realize, you know, like we live on the east coast of, of the island and it's it's a long drive to get to the other side of the island. It's 10 or 11 hours to get to Port of Basque. Then you're looking at a ferry, which is not a cheap endeavor. It's it's expensive yeah. and it's, it's still another four or five hours on a ferry. And then you're still only in Cape Breton. You haven't even really made it to Halifax yet. You're still looking at another four or five hours. So, you know, just to travel just alone to get to a place like Halifax is is a really long trip and an expensive trip, especially for four guys, you know, you're in a van to gas and hotels or whatever, you know? So I think that's, you know, that's a huge thing with that all. So King Nancy's in Toronto, you're doing gigs and you're, you're touring around. You decide to move back to Newfoundland. Was that a group decision? Was that a solo decision or how did, how did that play out? Uh, Ironically enough, it was sort of a group decision, but prompted by one member who then when the time came to actually move home, stayed in Toronto. Oh no way. Um, (laughs) We were like we were all kind of doing our thing, and uh, we had our successes and our and our, our failures, and, and you know things were up and down. But for the most part, we were very happy with where we were going. We loved what we were doing musically. We had some industry stuff go on that we were just like not big fans of. Uh, the, the short version of the story is we got cheated by a uh, battle of the bands thing that we were invited to take a place in. We won uh, the overall battle of the bands after playing numerous gigs for it, and then half the prizes didn't come through. Okay. So it kind of screwed all of our plans because we had planned for like, you know, if we win, this is what we do. And so once we knew we planned or we'd, we'd won, we had like, okay, this CD manufacturing, um, recording time, all the stuff. So we were like, we've got it all mapped out. We're going to release a new album at this point in time. Here's the songs. We're ready to go. And then prize after prize started falling through. So it was like... What was the reason behind that? Did you ever find out or... Uh, mostly because one company went under uh, okay. that was a sponsor. And then the guy who was promoting the event basically was a bit of a shyster and mm-hmm. said, well, I'm not paying for it out of my pocket. So screw you guys. Oh, the typical uh, industry stuff. I, I hear yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, it happens to everybody. I think every, like, no matter how smart you are, there is going to be at some point in time, somebody who's going to screw you over whether you, whether you think you're smart or not. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. And and I think that almost that kind of stuff needs to happen to, to people because you need to learn how to avoid, maybe not avoid those situations, but how to learn from a move on. And Oh and, yeah. Like we, we learned a lot, like from that experience alone, we started talking to like, you know, entertainment lawyers and all kinds of stuff. So we learned a lot about, you know, what, what, or, you know, what responsibility do you have and what responsibility these people have for furnishing the prizes they say they're going to, if somebody says they're going to give you something, you know, how legally binding is somebody's word versus an email, which is a written paper trail, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that you learn, but I mean, the only way to learn is to do it. You, mm-hmm. can, you can read a book about it, but you're not going to remember all those details. I think most people are genuinely try to to hope that most people will be good about these things, but sometimes they're not. That's right. Yeah. No. There's no doubt about that. So, so you move back home. Um, you know, several members of King Nancy. Do you guys still keep playing in St. John's, or, or what kind of happens there? Well, when we got back, well, we knew when we were coming home. Like one of the guys stayed in Toronto because you know he met the girl of his dreams, and they got married, and they're still in Toronto, and they come home every once in a while for a visit. So that's kind of what we did. King Nancy would become more of a an occasional band you know whenever all four members were in the same city we play together um and we haven't done it in a couple of years obviously because i stopped playing and everybody kind of went down their own directions everybody got married had kids all that kind of stuff so you know some people kind of got out of music and i kept with it so 
was that a little spark for the solo kind of career or was that was that kind of what played into that yeah very much so because i mean king nancy was i i was the main songwriter like i'd say 75 percent of the songs were solely written by me and the other 25 were written by me and the guys working some some stuff out so um once we moved home and when it was became clear that like King Nancy was not going to be touring anymore doing that sort of stuff. I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll see what, what solo is like again. Cause I, mean, I was doing solo gigs in town while I was with King Nancy, but I never really did that many solo gigs in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I only did like two or three, like usually special events where like the guys couldn't play or they just wanted a soloist. So I, in a weird way, I took four years off of doing solo and had to kind of get my chops back up. So I started playing like a couple of um, weekly regular shows. I'm going to play like, Every week at CBTGs with a couple of guys. Every week at the Bull and Barrel. I remember the Thursday nights at the Bull and Barrel, actually. I did a couple yeah. of those years ago. I, I was probably, I want to say 2014, maybe somewhere around that that place. Yeah. Uh, I, I do remember doing those Thursday nights. They were always a lot of fun when we used to play just right in the corner of the Bull there, yeah. Yeah. We used to, I mean, I, I when I first moved home in 2006, uh, it became like a goal of mine to kind of um, create, I guess not necessarily solely create, but tried to nurture a, uh, a singer-songwriter scene in St. John's because there was a few songwriters who were known, but they were usually more established. So I kind of got involved in like the CBTG's thing was myself, Luke Mertzoy, Justin Mertzoy, and Brad Wheeler. And the four of us would always play. And we kind of, we play with each other. We play off each other. We do solo sets. Sometimes we have guests who were in town show up. The Bull um, was originally just me. And then after a while, I was like, I talked to Tina Borges, the owner, and said, what about if we did this and invited another like a weekly new guest I do a set, guests would do a set, I close off another set, kind of like an extended open mic. Uh, and that worked out great because then I started having friends from outside of Newfoundland. I got I convinced them to come to Newfoundland, even though there wasn't much money here on touring wise, because it's just not as much cash as there is in other cities. Um, but people would people love the idea of like coming to Newfoundland for a week. Mm-hmm. I mean they play like four or five nights in a row in the city for a different crowd every night. So that kind of that meant that I had control of like the CBTG's gig, the bull gig. Uh, Adam Baxter was doing the uh, the Wednesday night gig at Distortion, so he would usually uh, cater to my my guests as well. So we kind of started creating the sort of Newfoundland exchange program. Any singer songwriters who played with these people here or got to know them, if they left the island to go do a tour, these people would book them good gigs in their cities. I mean, I mean yeah, that's that's, that's, that's kind of the that, fundamental. That has happened play. to me actually. You know, like that's you know that's happened to me in the past. Yeah. I, I've speaking of the songwriter series like i i um you know the wednesdays with baxter were were incredible you know and those that run of, of shows was amazing and you know i met a lot of people uh through those shows who i have played with in other parts of the country as well so yeah that's there you're definitely right there i i remember the first time i ever seen you jerry um we played a show together at the bull or sorry at the extortion on one of adam baxter's wednesday series and Without trying to blow too much smoke up your ass, I remember I did a set. And at the time, I was playing with a band called Mo Cove, which was kind of like like acoustic gutter mouth, I guess. Like, it was kind of like some songs were like like funny. You know, I was writing songs about my buddies riding the bus or I'd be writing songs about a breakup. I, you know, it was a hard world to try to mix both those together. And yeah, I always found the toughest part with me with those was that the songs that I, I could write that I would get in a laugh out of people, the songs that weren't so funny meant more to me. And I felt that every time I would try to play those, it was kind of getting pushed in the back because people just wanted to hear something to have a laugh. And I remember doing that Wednesday series and um, it was the first time I had ever seen you perform. And I played first and Baxter played second and you played third. And I stood there with my jaw on the floor, man. I was absolutely 
enamored with you. I, I, I remember, I remember it so vividly watching you and thinking to myself, I have to get better. I have to get better than this because I, I can be better than this. And I like to write songs and I like to write songs from the heart. And I watched you perform. And I remember, I remember thinking that very, very much so. And uh, so that was a big part of, of songwriting for me was watching guys like you kind of doing it a little bit before me. So, so thank you for that. I just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you. So, I mean, I, I, I had the same experience, obviously coming up, like watching guys like Sean Panting and then, and, and guys like that play like Jody Richards and even, and, and who I wasn't even friends with at such at the time, but, you know, became friends with just by asking them, asking them questions. But that's one of the things that also happened to Kay Nancy when he moved to Toronto. Like within like six months of being there, we were kind of like, we were pretty good in St. John's for St. John's. But part of the problem with St. John's is that it's such a musical town that if you've got the musical ability, you get thrown on a stage and everybody goes, that's awesome. There's no, nobody really teaches anybody here how to actually get better at their craft and how to be more professional and stuff like that. Um, and we, we kind of realized six months into Toronto that like, we need to get better. We need to be. We need to know every possible outcome. If you break a string, what do we do now? You know. If, so we had like songs figured out. It was like if Jerry breaks a string, the next song is this, because he can change a string while he's still singing it. Right. And right. if Mark breaks a string, it happens this way, and blah blah blah. And so we thought about every possible opportunity, and I still do that to myself now. Like if I'm planning a gig, even if I'm only playing one gig every like six or seven months now, it's like I'm still plotting out that gig in my head, going, "Here's the order of songs, and here's why." Right, it makes perfect sense to me. If somebody requests a song, I'm like, I'll get to that, but it's because it's already in the order I'm doing the songs. Right, there's there's a through line to everything I do, and every song I write, every show I play, everything has its purpose and why. Uh, and I think that's that's probably what you saw that night. I mean, yeah, there's there's an element of like maybe the songs are good and the performance was good, but it, those things are stronger because of how I think about music. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of my my musical friends they don't necessarily think about it a lot that way. Uh, some do. Some are totally like, I mean, you talk to Ian Foster and he'll talk to you for seven days about why he chose to use the chord G in that particular song. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, but most songwriters are just like, I don't know, just kind of fell out of the hands or came out of the throat and just worked. Mm -hmm. so it's cool. You, so you, made lucky an, then. you made an interesting point just now, just talking about, um, you know, how you can kind of throw any, any musician up on a stage in St. John's and people are going to say they're good, but, or, or, you know, or whatever in that kind of sense. But what do you think the reason is that I don't want to say a lot of Newfoundland musicians or they don't get ahead, but they don't learn the ins and outs of, of the business. Is it because of lack of managers or, or stuff like that in, in within the city or. Uh, well, I mean, I think there's, a, there's, we could talk all day just on that question alone, because I, yes, there's, there's a lack of management. There's a lack of uh, professional standards. I mean, in a city like Toronto, you don't just go and say, call the bar like hey how's it going my name is jerry i want to play a gig and they go cool come down thursday you know that actually happens in st john's oh yeah very frequently it has yeah. many times um whereas those cities it's like no no no, you're booking like six seven months in advance so if you're going to do it up there you've got to be prepared and, and ready to do it you got to have your press get together your your epk or whatever you need mm -hmm. your demos all stuff here people are going to bars and going like hey man can i play a gig and they're like what do you sound like you got a demo like no, I don't got a demo, but we're kind of like rock meets like this meets that. And they're like, cool. All right. Well, we got two bands playing on Friday. So when you come down and open up for them. All right, great. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is fantastic for getting people on a stage, mm -hmm. but it sucks in terms of making them harness their professionalism. Yeah. I mean, it, it, weird, definitely, it definitely brings people to a, to a place where they, I don't want to say maybe plateau because there's, they don't really know where else to reach perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, like that stuff I was talking about, about us watching, um, live dvds all the time 
that wasn't because we were going to study how Madonna sings and rip off Madonna's vibe, but it was like, how, what is she doing theatricality wise that is entertaining and interesting a crowd? Like there are some bands I've seen at St. John's that are, if you close your eyes, they're the most incredible band you've ever heard. And if you open your eyes, they're the worst thing you've ever seen on stage <laughs> yeah, yeah. because they're all just standing there like mopes. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. And if you're not, if you're not entertaining, you get the, the musical performance experience is not just sonorous. It's also visual. Mm-hmm. So if you're not going to entertain your crowd, whether that's like, it could be something as simple as the band just has to be rocking out or super stoic. I mean, one of my, one of my favorite things I ever saw in Toronto was a band called uh, the ladies and the gentlemen. And this one night they played and all of them were wearing like white, like painter's pants and like a white Hanes t-shirt. And they're just all wearing the same thing on stage, doing the thing, rocking out. All of a sudden, three or four songs in, there's a part where everybody stops playing. It's just the singer singing and the drummer doing a breakdown. And the rest of the band just stands there and goes like this. And it was the most theatrical thing I'd ever seen a, a small band do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You see like a big band, like with lights and crazy shows, do stuff all the time. But when we saw them do that, I was like, that's that's cool that's innovative innovative yeah i could not hum you three bars of their music but i remember that to this day and that's like 15 years ago yeah it's incredible how stuff like that stays with you and and that's kind of the point that i was saying about i I do remember when i seen you live it just kind of has stuck with me forever so yeah so you move home and and you're 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 doing some solo gigs around and you start working on some solo records like you got a ton of solo records out you've got uh three or four solo records uh or maybe two or three solo records plus there's two Christmas albums in there. And the last one you put out was 2014. Um, kind of talk about those records that you put out and, and, and moving into the Christmas records. I want to talk about those because those are very popular. I, I always see, you You know, you're always doing really well with those at Christmas time and people love yeah. them. They're always getting played on the radio stations in around St. John's and stuff like that. And then maybe a little bit about the last one, uh, Rogued Out. Uh, okay. So when I, when I first moved home, um, the first thing I did was start saving up to buy like a home studio setup. And once I got that stuff together, I knew I was planning to go on the road in 2008, um, which I, I did a mini tour kind of thing in like 2008, just St. John's of Toronto and back over the span of like three weeks, not very, nothing crazy. And while I was on tour, all the stuff that I had to sell was King Nancy because I didn't have any Jerry Stamp merch yet. So it was kind of like, you know, I had to make sure I was at the merch table explaining to people like, no, 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 this is, this is my band. This is not some other person that, you, you know, you missed another <laughs> band earlier or whatever. Yeah. So um, I realized that I needed something. So at first, I, when I started to figure out my way around some of the new recording gear, because I was an analog recording guy in studios. So using digital and uh, recording gear was very foreign to me. Um, so the, some of the first stuff I did was record solo versions of some Ken Nancy songs uh, and some other songs that I'd written that just didn't really have a home yet. Uh, so I put out the album Racing Bad Weather as like a tour companion album so that I went on this tour in like, you know, October, November, December, getting home in like mid-December, thus the name Racing Bad Weather because we know what the weather's like in Newfoundland in winter. Um, and so that kind of became the first, I guess, official Jerry Stamp solo record aside from like a live thing I put out in Toronto. And uh, somewhere in like the next couple of months, I started doing the RPM Challenge. And then when that was, that was in February of 12, 2009, and I ended up having enough material for like two, two and a half albums. And I said to myself, maybe I'll put out two records for a laugh and see what happens. But I was doing an interview with somebody from, um, I think it was The Scope at the time. And I kind of thought the interview was done and I let it slip that I was contemplating the idea of putting out two records and then maybe starting to work directly on two Christmas records. Because I wanted to do a Christmas record, but I couldn't scale down the songs enough to figure out what like, you know, 12 or 13 songs I would do. 
So I was like, maybe I'll do two. I'll do like one that like, you know, the the white Christmas record that like mom would like, and then mm-hmm. the blue bummer Christmas record. It's a little bit more rocking. Mm-hmm. It's more for me. And I made the mistake of mentioning that that would end up being five records in one calendar, <laughs> calendar year. Including so course, the RPM. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that of course became like the headline. I was like, oh crap. What did I do? So then there was no backing out once it was, once it was like press. I was like, well, now I got to do it. So I pushed myself to get that done. And I did like, I managed to do a couple of tours around it too. So, you know, I finished, I put out one record in July, one record in August, went on tour, came back. Uh, before I left in August, I had, um, I had the Christmas record done that was off being mastered. So when I got back, it was time to release the Christmas record. And then when I got all that done, it was after Christmas, it was like, you know, award season. So it was like ECMAs and uh, CMAs and stuff like that up in Toronto and Canadian Music Week, all that kind of stuff, North by Northeast. So I just started doing all that circuit and I just basically didn't stop from like 2008 until I think it was 2011 was the last, 2011, 2012 was the last tour I did. And that was 54 gigs in 58 days. So let me get this right. You released five records in the one year? Yeah, from November till November. Wow, man, that's absolutely incredible. And all original material, like that is a, that's a feat in itself. I mean, Almost I know- Almost all original. Uh, the Christmas album- Sorry, yes, fair enough. Yes, the Christmas records. Yes, that's right. But still like a lot of work and a lot of time and yeah. even just, just the work behind, not even just the songs, just the work about putting out records. You know what I mean? Putting art together and, and all this stuff that comes with it, the manufacturing and all that stuff. That's just such an incredible feat in itself. I mean, uh, releasing one record is hard enough. I can imagine five yeah. in, in the one year. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that's incredible. So, so you're touring around 2014, you go into the studio with Robert Kelly and uh, start working on Rogue Doubt. So what kind of happens then? So um, by the time I finished those, those five CDs in one year, I had been basically on a track record of at least one record a year since 2002. Like King Nancy's first solo record, or King Nancy's first record. Then we did like a live album. Then we did an EP. Then we did a live album. Then we did another King Nancy record. So then I did a solo or a live record. Then King Nancy did a record. Then I started doing records. So I was like, I'm going to keep going. So for 2010, I was like, I did five in 2009. I think I'm okay for a while. <laughs> so I started to plan for doing one that was going to come out in, I think, 2011 or 2012 that I guess would have been rogued out. Um, but then I started having the health problems, the psoriatic arthritis, which at the time we didn't know what it was. And it was it started off in my left-hand ring finger. Um, it was constantly paining. And so we, myself and the different doctors I spoke to, everybody thought it was probably repetitive uh, motion injury from playing 250 gigs a year, like all that kind of stuff. So you're just burning yourself out. Um, so I started kind of writing a little bit differently because I was, my original plan was to do a fully, uh, full band record. And then maybe my next record I was thinking about for after that would be like a full acoustic record, kind of like, you know, a rock and a more mellow record. Uh, but because of the way things worked out, um, by 2012, I was like, this is getting worse. Things are not getting better. So I'm going to do one more record. I got to get it get working on it in the next year or so. Um, and that was when I started having doctors say like, there's probably a good chance you're going to have to stop playing, performing. You won't be able to play guitar anymore. Your throat will be closed off and you won't be able to sing anymore. So um, by the time I got it all put together and figured out, Rogue Doubt kind of became both the rock record and the acoustic record kind of smashed together. So I, it's like half and half. Half the record mm-hmm. is rock and half the record is very mellow. Um, and it became less about putting out a record that, you know, you think people will like and more about this is my swan song. You know, mm-hmm. this is, this could probably be the last record I ever do and probably will be. I mean, at this point in time, I'm probably never going to do another record. I might get back into doing some singles, 
maybe even an EP, but I highly doubt I'm going to do a full-length album anytime soon. That must have been such a shock, man. I mean, it must have been on top of the, you know, the kind of the physical pain that you were feeling and going through just mentally, you must have just been shocked and, you know, on, on, on what your plans were and, and what you thought was going to happen in the future and, and what was going to unfold. Yeah, I was, I was a planner. I was a schemer. I was the guy who had like the two year plan, the five year plan, the 10 year plan. Uh, and when the diagnosis finally came in 2014, while I was working on Rogue Doubt, um, that was kind of like the, the end of all my plans. It was like, nope, no more planning for you. You have zero control anymore. So, um, you know, it kind of, it does teach you some weird things. I mean, there are negatives and positives to, to having your, your life splintered like that, you know? Some notes on, on Rogue Doubt. Um, you won Music and L Award for the Best Male Artist. You're also nominated for the Best Video. So can Songwriter and Album of the Year. That's all for the same album. Um, a fun note... <clears throat> We were we were chatting a couple of days ago, and I was asking you a few things, and you sent along some pretty interesting notes. And one of them was, "Embers was chosen by George Strombolopoulos as indie song of the week, which came with a healthy bump and a pay from SoCan." What was that? What was all? What I do remember that happened, and I remember you, you reading about that on social media. But what was behind that story? Um, I also, really- sorry, I want to add one thing before you answer that. I, I remember something about Dallas Green or something as well. Was there like a Dallas Green thing where he showed up at a couple of gigs or was there anything like that? Or am I just, am I thinking that? Oh, no, I, I can tell you a story. I, I was at Dallas Green's first gig, I think, as City in Color. Right. Okay. But okay. Was, I want to hear about George first. I want to hear about George first. Yeah. Okay. So um, the George thing just kind of happened accidentally. I mean, you submit your songs, your albums to CBC and they make sure that they get out. They, they, they're put on a list of like new releases for that week or that month or whatever. And then everybody who works at CBC has access to that list. So they can go listen to those songs and decide if they want to put some of the music on their show. Oh, cool. I guess, excuse me, I guess for whatever reason, Strombo saw my album and gave it a listen or, and got at least, you know, halfway through because Embers is halfway through the album. <laughs> and he decided that he, uh, he liked that song was like, this is going to be the indie song of the week, which, you know, I didn't really even know was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody like I was in Halifax actually doing a release for the album and I got home from the gig at like, you know, two o'clock in the morning and somebody had messaged me and said like, you're on, or it was the next night after the gig, sorry. It's like a Sunday night show. And somebody like messaged me and said, you're on Strombolopolis right now. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, somebody, his show was massive at that time when he yeah. was doing that CBC shows a nationally aired program. Like it was yeah. very, very well known. It got national radio play. It also was on like Sirius XM satellite. So like, broadcasting that it was just from that one time he played that song got a pretty decent bump in uh in SoCan. and then there's also like a whack of just like crazy people on twitter and shit who just suddenly follow you it's like new followers they, and stuff they, like that yeah who's this person oh, i like this i'm gonna go follow this person and for like two months it was like me unfollowing people back right. like yeah this person's i don't want to see this person anymore <laughs> um so it was pretty weird but uh it was it was, it was cool it definitely you know, help sell some albums and get yeah. some, some notoriety and stuff. Yeah. And um, with Rogue Doubt, before I move on, like, did you do a CD release show with that, with that, that record? And did you do any touring at all? Or was it more so just a release? No, unfortunately, there wasn't. I, I knew there wasn't going to be any massive touring. So I actually booked a flight to Toronto, but then got like a two-day, uh, a two-day stopover in Halifax. So I flew to Halifax, did a gig uh, for like a CD release party, and then flew to Toronto, did a gig as a city release party, and then came home. Um, so that was pretty much the, the most of the touring. 
and then I did like a couple of gigs. I only did like the one, the one actual CD release party like gig with like a band at the mm-hmm. Rock House, um, and then after that it was like, that was the in December that we did the actual release. The CD was out for like a month or so, and then CD release party was like December nineteenth. I waited until, you know, Christmas time and everybody was home, mm-hmm. got a good crowd, and then uh, the next year I only did like I think it was seven gigs that last year. And they were all like songwriter circles, like three, four song gigs, you know, mm-hmm. nothing. I think I couldn't force my way through. How were you physically feeling at that time when you were, you know, when you were putting out that record in, in say in December and you were doing those couple shows in Halifax, Toronto, how were you, how was your body feeling at that time? Uh, pretty garbage. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was walking with a cane. So it was mm-hmm. like me walking to a gig with the cane guitar slung over the back. Cause I had a backpack case and like, you know, the, the box of CDs or t-shirts or whatever I had with me, under the other arms. So it was just like, you know, trudging around with the, with the cane. For anybody who's listening at home who, who maybe is not familiar with this condition, can you explain what it, what it's like and, and maybe some of the, the, the feelings and that happens to you or. Okay. So psoriatic arthritis is uh, an autoimmune disease. Um, it's obviously of the same family of arthritis. The big difference is that with normal, I'll say normal with most forms of arthritis, it's fluid that builds up in the joints. So fluid can be massaged. You know, you got fluid in your hand, you can just kind of massage through it and, it sucks, but you can probably do most things. Uh, what happened with me is I got a form called psoriatic arthritis, uh, which means that instead of it being fluid in the joints, it's tissue. So there's nothing that can move that out of the way. It's just, it bows bones, it bows joints. It defects your muscles, your tendons. Um, there were periods where like, I couldn't pick up a mug of coffee. I used to work at a restaurant part-time and I couldn't just like pick up the mug like this because my finger would feel like it was going to snap off. You know, things like that. And eventually I had to stop working. I couldn't move. I could barely play guitar. I remember being at a a gig at the ship. And I remember, I'm pretty sure I made the decision to stop playing on stage. Um, I've been thinking about it for a while. I didn't want to, obviously. But I was playing gig at the ship and like my hand was just doing this chord. And all of a sudden this finger just went, nope. I was like, what do I do now? (laughs) So luckily I was like able to reconfigure what I knew how to do. But this finger just stopped working. So for the rest of my like set, I was like finding new ways to play chords. Um, and I mean, you just can't, you can't perform like that. You can't, that, that guy that was the super prepared guy for every gig, you can't go out and play a gig if you don't even know what the general outcome should be. Mm-hmm. You know? So after like things started getting worse and worse, I was like, I don't want to be on stage a year or two years from now and just fall apart. Just get up there and play like half a song and be like, sorry guys, done. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wanted to quit while I was still playing well sure. enough that most people didn't notice. You know, my close friends would be like, what's going on with that thing that you do? I was like, yeah, that's, that's the arthritis. Mm-hmm. You know? And of course, shortly after I stopped performing or stopped playing um, regularly, that was when I ended up being like basically bedridden for six months. I could barely leave my house. I pretty much only went out for like doctor's appointments. You know, um, if I like, if I had, to, if I thought I was gonna have to go to the bathroom at three o'clock, I'd start having to move towards the bathroom at two o'clock because it would take me that long to get there. Wow, man. Wow. So it, it was pretty, uh, pretty crippling. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So, you know, you're, you're, you're in a rough, rough place. You're, you're thinking, you know, obviously you've, you've devoted so much time and energy into this, this path and this career, you know, as a performing artist and, and as a songwriter and stuff like that. Um, 2015, you take the graphic design program from the college of North Atlantic. Uh, what yeah. was the idea behind that? Was that just a, a move to try to, to, to do something that your, your body felt that it was capable of doing or? 
Um, well, I got when I when I had to stop working, I got the restaurant, and which I I started working more at the restaurant as my body was hurting too much to go on tour. But then I just slowed down working at the restaurant as well. After short after that, so I wasn't working very much. I wasn't making any money, and then things started to get worse. Um, I went on disability for like a little while, and disability was like nothing. It was like five hundred dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's nice to get five hundred dollars a month, but that's not going to pay any rent or anything. So, uh, you know, I, I figured I needed to do something. So I, I was living with my folks at the time uh, because it just made more sense than you know living on my own when you could barely do anything. And I thought to myself, if I can at least summon the energy to get over to CNA, the school, get dropped off there every morning, um, then you know I can maybe start doing artwork for people's albums just from like the friends and acquaintances I have in music. I mean, I know the field and how, how assembling CD artwork goes. And so I went into the program and I kind of took to it a lot faster than I thought I would because I was not a, you know, a super computer savvy kind of person. Um, my first computer was 2006. So I was not exactly the guy who was hacking in an ORAD or anything. <laughs> and um, it turns out I, I was good at it. I had a, a pretty good aesthetic for what I wanted to see and what I wanted to hear and what how it was all going to work. And uh, I started doing it. And then luckily, around that same time, I started uh, new medications, which were very helpful. So I didn't have to just do the occasional bit of artwork from my bed. I could actually get out and do stuff. So I started doing photography in school and doing some, some band photos for people and using that as their artwork and their posters and all that kind of stuff. So that became a bit of a thing. And then through that, I kind of branched out to like logo design and and even some video work and everything. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I see you were, um, I think you were nominated for a, a video you directed, I believe. Was, was that yours or Ian Foster's or? Yeah, I did a yeah. video for, uh, Ian had a song called New Rush for an Old Town, which is an awesome song. And uh, he asked me to do some sort of video project for it. Actually, I kind of asked him if I could do a video for it because I had to do a video project for school, but it only had to be like 30 seconds long. But I had this idea for his video. Um, and I said like, how do you feel about me taking this on? He was like, cool. I mean, obviously, why wouldn't you? Yeah, of course. What yeah. is going to say like, oh, no, you want to do something for me for free? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So, I mean, fast forward a little again. I mean, we're, we're into about 2017, 2018. Um, you decide to make this big move to Costa Rica. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of my time in the South as well. I, I travel. I'm in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico for a few months every winter. I know how different the climates and stuff like that makes your body feel even just regards to waking up in the morning you make this move it was a health reason i believe was was the original reason right like yeah. maybe describe a little about what the the thought process process was about making that move and what made you make that move so in uh, christmas of 2015 just after the album came out and i was i wasn't working anymore i wasn't going to school or anything at that point in time i had no prospects at that point in time uh and my sister and her husband were in costa rica they went there for christmas and they just like, you know, FaceTimed me or Skyped me one day and basically said like, why don't you come down here for like a couple of days and just see how it feels. And so I basically did. I think we talked on like a Tuesday and by Thursday I was at the airport. So I went down on like January 4th or 5th. I was there for like 12 days and I felt great like as soon as I stepped off the plane. I mean, I wasn't like, you know, throw the cane away and dance down the streets. Sure, yeah. But I felt much better. And I realized that like the climate there was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly because it's the exact same s- system every day where I live down there now. Right. Right. When I'm there, it's 34 degrees every day, no rain for like six months of the year. 
And then the only change when it does turn into rainy season is that it rains some days for like an hour and makes it a little bit more humid. So it's actually hotter. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2018, I graduated school. I'd uh, taken a job working for a real estate uh, agency. Um, I had done like a, a, a couple of other things on the side. Like I did a guest stint writing for the Cyrus 22 Minutes, which was yeah, fun. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't really, I, I knew that like winter was getting worse and worse in my body. And even though the medication was helping me move more, it was still just going to be a stopgap measure as long as I was constantly here in the winter. So I originally thought maybe I'll retire to Costa Rica when I'm like 60. And I was like, what am I waiting for? I'm a new graphic designer. I'm freelance, so I can do it from anywhere in the world. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have any like job to speak of. That's like, you have to be here for these, for these office hours. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Costa Rica and spend my winter there and basically become a snowbird. Yeah. And uh, so I did it and went down there and my sister and her husband came down with me for the first month I was there. And um, we just kind of like looked around at some places and found a cheap condo and fixed it up. Incredible. So, I mean, you, you spoke about instantly the changes that it, it, it affected your body. Like uh, you, you've obviously spent a couple of years down there. I know that you have been home now, but obviously that's due to COVID and, and yeah. everything that's going on there. But, you know, after being there for a few months, like what was happening with your body and, and your mind? Like, how did you, how did you feel? Uh, well, I mean, it was, it was a new adventure. So there's obviously a bit of um, the magic that comes to the whole, like I'm in a new place. So you kind of get like that, that boost of energy anyway, anyway. Um, obviously having access to like super cheap fruits and vegetables that are like really healthy, uh, was much more helpful than like most of the meat, food I was eating here was just like, you know, meat and potatoes. potatoes like, yeah, so it's like, exactly. Even though we live in a community that's like mostly uh, a lot of fishermen, um, there's not that much like fish isn't actually that accessible here. It's fairly expensive. Down there, like you go down the beach every day and watch the fishermen come in and go like, I'll buy one red snapper and two parrotfish, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing. So you could, you could eat good for cheap. Um, and that's if you wanted to cook. If you wanted to go out to restaurants, there's another... There's always a taco special anywhere you go. Exactly, yeah. Um, tacos on Tuesdays, tacos on Wednesdays, burritos on Thursdays. <laughs> but um, by February of 2019, I stopped having used the cane. So I guess like the extended periods of time down there, I felt like I didn't need the cane as much anymore. I was able to start going to a gym, you know, which I would walk to the gym and home. So it was like six kilometer round trip. The fact that I could walk that far alone was showing me that there was positive, um, positive things happening. And then by February, middle of February, I think I was, I just decided one day I'm going to go for a walk without the cane and see how it works. And that was okay. And after like a month or so of doing that, I'd kind of got more comfortable and less uh, concerned about falling and things like that. So I, uh, I felt okay to not use the cane. And um, since I've been home now, this is almost a year now since I got home uh, because of, like you said, COVID and uh, things were good during the summer and the fall, there was like a brief period where like the weather changes and it wasn't that great. And now it's definitely getting worse. I mean, I have to like do things very, very carefully, very gingerly every day. I'm not leaving my house. I'm basically just like waiting for people to like, you know, getting people to bring me the things that I need. Um, I'm not going out anywhere. I'm not doing anything. I can't exercise right now. I might be able to do a couple of push-ups here and there, but that's like one day a week. Because as soon as I do them, it's like my wrist feels like it's going to snap off. Mm-hmm. You know, so the weather, the barometric pressure is the main thing. Mm-hmm. People think it's the weather, but it's actually barometric pressure. And um, because in a place like Newfoundland, it fluctuates so much, we're in the middle of the cold North Atlantic. So one day it's like 12 degrees, the next day it's five degrees, then it's minus 10, then it's seven, 
and it's three, and it's two, it's minus eight. So it's back and forth so much that your body doesn't have time to regulate. And even people who don't have autoimmune diseases feel this. Like people who get migraines and stuff like that, that's often what it is, is barometric pressure shifting. In a place like Costa Rica where the weather doesn't change at all for pretty much the entire year, the barometric pressure doesn't shift at all. So your body gets used to it and you can do some things. So, I mean, as much as I love Costa Rica and the friends that I've made there, it's, I, I don't go there because I'm like, I want to go live in paradise. I was never a heat guy. I was the kind of guy who's like, if I was going to go on a vacation, I'd want to go to like some city with a bunch of museums like London or Edinburgh or something like that. Um, but, you know, the heat is definitely helps. So that original move to Costa Rica, was that on a recommendation or was it kind of like an experiment? Uh, sort of both. I mean, I had talked over like, I don't make a lot of decisions very um, instantaneously. I'm a very like careful, calculated kind of guy. So I asked a bunch of my doctors and they were like, well, I mean, there's a reason why a lot of Newfoundlanders have property in Arizona you know, because in Newfoundland, there's actually, we have a higher per capita ratio of people with forms of arthritis than any other province or state in North America. So um, that's probably because our gene pool is often pretty much the same section of like the UK area for the most part. So um, a lot of people from here go to Arizona because it's dry, right? But I didn't want to go to Arizona, just didn't want to go to the States. It wasn't my kind of thing. I wanted, if I was going to go somewhere, I want to go somewhere where it was like culturally very different from me. Mm-hmm. Not just like, okay, it's still a very Anglo place. I was like, I want to go somewhere they, they speak Spanish or Portuguese or something. I don't want to, I don't want to go and just like walk off the plane and assume that I live down the road. You no. Know? Mm-hmm. So uh, Costa Rica, because I'd been there before, seemed like a pretty decent spot. And the more I did research to just, even just to go visit there for a while, the more I realized it's one of the safer places, um, not just in terms of crime and stuff, but also like there's no, they don't even have a military there anymore. They got rid of it like 1947, 48. Um, they spend all the money that they saved on military, on education and healthcare. Um, it's the pretty much the only stable government in Central America. I mean, you look at a country like Nicaragua, where like every ten years there's a coup or something happens. You know, Costa Rica is always pretty solid. It's still a third world country, or what I guess we call a developing country now. But um, yeah, it's it's a great spot. So I, I look forward to going back whenever I whenever I can. What's life been like in? What's life been like in Costa Rica? I know you you did a couple of gigs down there and I guess you're just doing graphic design and just, just, you know, uh, hanging out. I mean, doing your thing. I, obviously you're, you're still working down there. Everybody has to work. I mean, and, yeah. and, and, and what, how did the gigs come along? Well, there hasn't been that many gigs. I, I think there's uh, one I, or two, I believe. Right. I did like one gig at yeah. a, a bar that a friend of mine uh, owns and it was good. And they were like, this is great. We're going to do it again. And then the next gig that I had booked was actually in March, it was March 20th. Mm-hmm. And that got, I canceled the gig a few days before uh, because of the whole COVID thing. And the bar wasn't very happy about that. But then like within like two days of me canceling, they were like, yeah, you're right. You should have canceled. So, <laughs> so they, they had, everything was shut down. Um, so, I mean, that second gig hasn't happened. So I don't know. When I go right, back, right. And I'm not really that worried about it. I mean, a gig is more for a bit of fun than, than a moneymaker. Sure. Yeah. If you make a few bucks. It's great. Um, ideally you want to make a few dollars, but um you know, at this point in time in my, my career, music is more of a hobby than it was. Mm-hmm. It's still my, you know, number one dream. My, my, that's what I love to do. But I'm not going to be, even if I was better tomorrow, I'm 43 years old now. I'm not going to hop in the van and go on the road again. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. That sort of, that lifestyle is way too, too young for me. <laughs> hey, I, I'm, I feel you, man. Trust me. So <clears throat> you, you come home after, you know, obviously uh, COVID, you know, t- 
moves into North America. It's it's starting to creep in and around uh, Canada. It's it's getting it's making its way to Newfoundland. You know, end of March. I was also down south that time. I I had to come home and quarantine for a couple of weeks. You come home. What's your initial thoughts on that? Um, when I first like, started uh, hearing about COVID and people started talking about, you know, the like, Trudeau started calling Canadians home and said, like, you guys should come home again. I was contemplating staying in Costa Rica um, and seeing if I could get like, the medication that I get now, I have to come home to get because it's very expensive. So my insurance covers it. Um, so I, some people were saying, oh, it's only going to be a couple of weeks. And I knew it was going to be a couple of months. I didn't think it was going to be a year, but mm-hmm. I knew it was going to be a couple of months. Um, so when I when I started trying to source getting my medication down there instead, whatever way I looked at it, it was going to be very expensive. Whether I got it sent down there to me and then had to hire a, a private nurse or someone to come and give it to me because it's a, it's an infusion. So you sit in a chair. It's kind of like chemo. Sit in a chair, get pumped full of drugs for three or four hours. Once every couple of uh, six weeks, seven weeks, something like that. So the idea that I was going to have trouble getting that um, at least once was problematic. But then I was like, what if I'm here for longer than that? You know, so my sister and her husband were there with me and they were like, we should go home. Well, my sister was the one who was like, we got to go home. We're definitely going home. She was not a fan of the idea of staying at all. She was like, no, we got to go back to Canada where it's safe. You know, so um, we actually had flights. I had a flight booked out for March 26th. I was supposed to come home anyway to get my infusion. And then WestJet canceled my flight. So we were kind of like, I don't really know what to do. So we started stocking up supplies as if we were going to stay there. And then all of a sudden one night, I actually did a, a live stream. The first one I did was March 18th from Costa Rica. And that night after we finished playing, we kept seeing like news reports about people freaking out in Canada. And Joanne started to, my sister, kind of started freaking out and said like, we got to go home. So we sat there with like three laptops out and we each were trying to get flights. We found... I think my, co- my uh, brother-in-law found flights on Air Canada for like three or $4,000, some ridiculously sick price. And so we just said, screw it. I got flights and went home. And so we were quarantining down there, went through the airport system, got to Halifax, quarantined for a day or two. Then I flew back to St. John's where I quarantined for another two weeks. So I was like the quarantine king for a while. <laughs> I mean, that was a scary time. Like I mentioned, I was down South as well. And, and, I mean, looking back on it, I, I don't want to downplay this virus by any means, but it was very new at the time. We had no yeah. idea. I mean, Trudeau's calling Canadians home saying, if you're abroad, get home now. Like, we don't know what's, I mean, I, I was, you know, terrified. I was like, what's going to happen? And I was the same way. I mean, I was down South and I was kind of thinking like, uh, I mean, I don't really want to get stuck down here with, with this going on. And I, and yeah. I want to get home, you know, it was, it was definitely uh it's a scary time and 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 you know thank god it's it's it is what it is i mean i'm not i don't want to downplay it or upplay it by any means but i mean we're all still here and i think we're very lucky obviously to be in newfoundland i mean you've been in newfoundland now for the last year and i think we've been very lucky that you know we managed to salvage a summer out of this i know we're in a a separate part of a lockdown here now again but i mean generally we've been pretty lucky out here out here in newfoundland so i mean thank god for that yeah, I, I think we're in a weird spot um, as Newfoundlanders because I mean, we well as both of us too for people who were traveling at the time, travel was weird. People didn't really know what to do. I mean, I went on one plane because we had several flights coming home. One plane they were passing out like moist toilets. I was like, you know, this is not like what you think it is. You think this is like an alcohol swab. You're just giving people like soap and water, <laughs> you know. Um, 
things like that. People didn't really know what was going on. Some flights they were giving out food and drinks. Some they weren't. Mm-hmm. Now some crews uh, were wearing masks. Some people were not. Mm-hmm. No, they weren't giving out masks at that point in time, and there was no stores that had them. So you'd be on flights, and then you'd see people with like you know homemade masks that were taped around their heads. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Um, and then getting home to be in a place where you know after the, the initial lockdown, when I first got home, once things started to open up again, like June. We did, like you said, had a great summer where people got to go out and do things. Most people, not everybody. And, uh, but it was weird. I mean, I'm, I have an autoimmune disease. So traveling was scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily for me, I had my sister there who was freaking out more than I was. Mm-hmm. So myself and my brother and I kind of got to like focus on her instead of on our own insecurities at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. It kind of helped. Um, but yeah, we got home safe. It was good. And, uh, you know, here it is almost a year later. I know. Hoping I know. that things will get better, but hope isn't going to do it. One thing I've been I've been liking to ask people on, on these podcasts is: Is there anything you've taken positively out of this COVID experience? Like, is there anything that's that's happened for you that maybe wouldn't have normally happened? Um. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's lots of things. Um. Even just like re- rekindling uh, a love of like reading and and watching some old classic movies, small things like that. Mm-hmm. To like the people that I've gotten stronger relationships with online mm-hmm. uh, because you're you're talking to people more online than you are in person um getting back into practicing music you know more frequently um there are things that suck obviously not working as much because nobody wants to spend money on promotional materials when like their business is not doing anything mm-hmm. um you know uh what else? I mean, I don't know. Just uh, 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 I started baking, little things like that. You know, I, I mean, wanted to ask you about your baking. Actually, that was a question I had for you. I've noticed that since COVID has started, you've become quite the master baker. I mean, where did this come from? Did you bake beforehand or did you just something you decided uh, to do to keep, keep yourself busy? No, I've, I've always been a bit of a cook, but it was more like, you know, pots and pans kind of stuff. And uh, like you're whipping up some serious baking dishes, man, like cookies and yeah. muffins and pies and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I started getting, well, I kind of said to myself, kind of the same way I was with music. Like if I, if I was going to do this, because it started off with just a couple of cookies and then moved on to something else simple. And then I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to bake something that is actually going to teach me a new skill towards baking. So the next thing you know, I'm, I'm doing things like Portuguese butter tarts or I'm doing like, <laughs> you know, uh, eclairs. You're not making chocolate chip cookies. You're like doing it. Yeah, like well, I, wanted to, I wanted to do things that were like, this is something more complex, like you know, I tried macarons and stuff like that. Like th- these are, these are those things that people go, Ooh, ah, when they see them, not just mm-hmm. like, oh, cool cookie. Right. Know? So I kind of wanted to do something that was going to be, I guess, a bit extravagant or interesting. Teach myself a new skill. I mean, I, I haven't done much baking since the summer because it was too hot to bake in the, in the condo. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see if, if I start baking again now <laughs> as, as the lockdown continues, but all right on well thanks jerry man i really want to thank you for coming on today i mean i had a lovely chat with you and i always found you a very interesting cat i know we've had a few conversations uh maybe late night uh you know in 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 our favorite corner of the favorite bar you know where we meet and i mean uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on here today uh for anybody who's at home and and maybe looking to find you and listen to some of your music or or look you up for some design work how can people find you uh i mean i think the the simple way is just a google search of jerry stamp j-e-r-r-y-s-t-a-m-p uh, jerrystamp.com is like my portfolio site for design um, there's a SoundCloud out there I'm all over Spotify and all those other streaming apps and stuff Apple Music, Google Play, so stuff there you know, it's, it's everywhere 
Right on, man. Well, thanks again, Jerry. Really appreciate you taking the time today and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks very much, man. It was fun. Take care. Big thanks to Jerry Stamp there for coming on. Uh, really great look into, you know, what Jerry has been through over the years. I mean, uh, I love chatting about the early 2000s songwriters. That that stuff was incredible. You know, if anybody, if you're from Newfoundland at all, you, you know the deck, you know CBTGs, you know Distortion and the Levy and Roxy's and, I mean, the Bull and Barrel. We've all spent nights up there and, and you know, that place to me is, is, is held such a special place in my heart. It's where I first started playing music in St. John's, you know, with Distortion and, and CBs and, and the Levy. Like these guys who, who own these places, they, they were incredible for, for young musicians. They really allowed you to, to get on a stage and, and get out there and really cut your teeth to be able to to try and, and work out some songs and work out how you how you feel on a stage and I mean that was a, a great look into that I, I love chatting with Jerry about about you know moving to Toronto with King Nancy you know I think anybody who's who's not a uh, a, mus- a musician or involved in the music industry loves to hear about you know bands grinding it out you know it's just such an interesting story it's been told a thousand times and they're all different and unique it's it's such a grind such a battle you know um especially coming out from newfoundland where you, you think it's probably a little bit easier than maybe than what it was I, i'm not speaking for jerry but i did the same thing i moved to toronto for a number of years and i mean it's tough it's it's a different world you know it's it's not as easy as it is in st john's by any means so uh, i love chatting with jerry about that it was incredible uh really really interesting to hear him talk about you know pivoting once once the uh the autoimmune uh disorder came up and you know he started battling with that and he he turned he turned to graphic design and you know he made the the life decision to to move to costa rica to battle with the uh or to to, for the climate change and i mean you got to hand it to him he's just he's just been grinding through and uh you know really really intelligent guys just i really like enjoy talking to jerry i mean i've spent a lot of late nights chatting with jerry you know maybe at the bowl over over a couple pops and every single time it's it's always i always learn something from jerry it's like he's super wise and i mean just love chatting with him um so yeah big thanks to jerry stamp for coming on and um yeah, I mean, I'll be back again this Friday on a live pod or a live stream, guys, on my Facebook Live. Make sure you do follow me on all all my channels at uh, Dave Witty on Instagram, Dave Witty on Twitter, uh, Dave Witty Music on Facebook, uh, and subscribe to my YouTube channel, please. You know, it's uh, this podcast is really rolling now. I've been really enjoying getting the new guests on. Really, really looking forward to the next two weeks. I mean, I got some great guests lined up. Um, not going to give any spoilers right now, but really looking forward to those conversations and, and getting their stories told. Um, other than that, guys, thanks very much for tuning in and thanks for all the shares and love and, and support over the last few weeks. I can't believe this is the fifth episode of this podcast already. I mean, I made the decision to do it one day and sometimes I'm a bit indecisive and I, I think about doing stuff for a long time and you know, I just pulled the trigger on this one and I got to say, it's one of the best decisions I've made. I've really enjoyed putting all these together and, and learning how to edit the videos and, and, and this, and the music and, and editing the audio and, and all that stuff. So once again, thanks for all the love guys. It, it, it's uh, really, really appreciated. And, and uh, I really, really love it. Thanks very much. Um, other than that, that about does it for me from downtown St. John's Newfoundland. I'm Dave Woody. Thanks very much guys. Peace.